Welcome to For the Love of Yoga. In this podcast series, we explore yoga in all of its deepest dimensions. May these words nourish you. We're going to talk something quite interesting. It's reincarnation and karma. And it's often a very important thing to discuss in yoga. Because with regards to karma, much like Tantra, karma is one of the most maligned and misused words. As it comes over from the East, it's one of the words that is most susceptible to misinterpretation. And of course, naturally, um, our modern use of karma has a very moralistic flavor, perhaps a remnant of leftover modern Catholic guilt, you know, that karma seems to imply some kind of being in the sky that holds a naughty or nice list. And there's something very punitive and moralistic about karma. So today we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about karma, what karma is, um, why there are some moralistic or punitive connotations around it, and particularly with regards to reincarnation. So today, and that's another one of those things that gets maligned, you know, like, oh, you do bad stuff, you're going to be reborn a worm or something like that. Sorry, this device has been just quite nonsense today. So, all right, that's, that's what we're going to do today. We're going to take for our point of departure karma and reincarnation. What I want to do is I want to motivate karma as a theory for you on scientific grounds. So a scientific theory really, beyond just being an explanation of the natural world, it's, it's an insight into cause and effect. So for something to be scientific, it has to show you a cause and show you a dependable, observable, and repeatable effect from that cause. So we can take study um, of science to be nothing more than the study of cause and effect. Um, and this gives us power, of course, if we know what causes crops to grow and die, then we can to some degree gain mastery over the crops in order that we might live a more plentiful life. So science, the goal of science is to give us some degree of control or agency in life. And the goal of science does that through educating us about cause and effect. So karma then, this is a very beautiful concept. Karma translates from the Sanskrit into English as action, reaction. So you can imagine it as one word, action, reaction. And the understanding there is that cause and effect are one thing. Where there is a cause, there must follow an effect. And where there was an effect, you can expect that there must have been a cause. So that's a beautiful kind of putting those two things together. Causality. That's really what the study of karma is. Before we talk about karma, though, we have to address suffering. That's a, a given. Since karma has this very punitive, moralistic dimension to it, as it's commonly misinterpreted to be, let's first start with suffering and, and what that is. In yoga, suffering is nothing more than being out of touch with reality. So yogically, suffering occurs. That is the state of suffering. And we all know what that state is all too well. Otherwise, we wouldn't be here. But or, or I don't know, I don't want to assume that of anybody. Some of us are already enlightened beings and are avatars, you know. <laughs> but um, let's say, okay, hi Nick, welcome, welcome. Let's say in yoga, suffering then is nothing more than being out of touch with reality. It's being misaligned with reality. That's all suffering is. The Buddha defines suffering 
as uh, desire as uh, the root of suffering is desire. To the Buddha, Kama. He said, You suffer because you have Kama, desire. And that's why he said, Dukkam, Dukkam, Sarvam, Dukkam. In all things, there, in, included in all things, is suffering. So, what is this Kama? Kama or desire is any time you experience a craving. It tells you that you don't yet think you are enough or complete in of yourself. So desire, that is desire to look for external things to fulfill us or to try to get off using external things, is also rooted in misunderstanding of reality. So when we don't know who we are, we don't know what the world is, um, we feel this state of fear, we're out of touch with the fullness of our being and the wholeness um, with which we I should naturally identify with, that's when we feel desire. So the Buddha said suffering, its root is desire. And I'd like to say desire, its root is being out of touch with reality. So what is reality then? In that sense, we can say reality. It's got so many names. You know, the Buddhists call it the beyond beyond. And what are you going beyond? You're going beyond concepts. The great beyond. The Buddhists call it suchness, tatata that which is, and is, is very different from good or bad. Because, you know, you come into a situation, you're like, this situation is good, this situation is bad. But those perceptions or those judgments might have nothing to do with the way the situation is. So isness, the actuality or the reality of something, is often a different thing than our perceptions or misperceptions or our judgments about that thing. So an easy way to say this is the difference between the concept of eating a strawberry and the actual experience of eating a strawberry. Because no amount of telling you about a strawberry will ever substitute for the biting of the strawberry, the tasting of the strawberry. So in that sense, reality here isn't to be confused with the correct theoretical framework as to what's what. You know, so you can go to a million Vedanta and Buddhist lectures and at the end come out and say, okay, I know I'm not my body, I'm not my mind, I'm the witness, this world, all is one. You could have that concept, but still be as far from it as, you know, the next beer drinking, sport watching, you know, unenlightened person. I don't know. So the reality of it then is not the thing, the concept. So what is that reality? That reality is an experience of wholeness. Now, that's the fundamental ground of all being. That is your witness consciousness, your shakshi, your atman, your brahman, or your buddha nature. So many words for this coming into contact with reality. The promise is, if you are able to, in meditation, sit and by a process of subtle observation realize that you are not the mind, not the body, and you go deep enough to, um, as the Buddhists say, move beyond all concepts, to move beyond your mind, you get in touch with something. You get in touch with a certain flavor of consciousness that to you feels legit and authentic. And then you're like, ah, okay, this is reality. And when you're in touch with that, you feel what the tantrics call purnyata, meaning wholeness. You feel that you are not this limited mind and body, you are all things at once. Not just the concept we are one, but the actual visceral experience of we are one. When you feel that, when you're in line with reality, when you see correctly, you no longer feel this craving. Your desire is no longer your desire. You no longer feel the fear of death and impermanence because all of that has to do with buying into the fictional personality construct. 
only the mind and only the body dies. So as long as you're rooted in self-awareness, they call it, or chit, pure consciousness, you don't fear, you don't crave. Suffering, then, we can say, is just an instance in which the part has considered itself to be the whole. So we'll just say that suffering is when the part considers itself to be the whole. Then we suffer acutely. So with regards to karma, we must talk about the part. You know, karma and reincarnation necessarily asks us to consider um, a specific entity reincarnating. So necessarily we're going to talk about you as a personality construct because that's what reincarnates. The mind and body does that reincarnate? The question is, does the, the body obviously doesn't reincarnate. So what reincarnates? What stores your karma? You know, who assigns karma? And these are all questions to ask. But I wanted to give you this backdrop of what suffering was and what um, identity is only so you, we don't get too caught up in this discussion of karma. Because finally, we have to ask whose karma is it? You know, who is doing the reincarnating? Who is it that's having these experiences? Not us, we are the witness. Okay, with that being said, let's get into our discussion about reincarnation. The first thing we must ask is, what is it that actually reincarnates? And actually, you know, before that, I must back up a little bit and say, what is reincarnation at all, right? Just because I don't want to assume we all have the same understanding as to what it is. Most of us, though, have this picture of you die, you as this personality die, and based on the merits of your action in this life, you are assigned another life in another body um, befitting your merits. So a lot of us think, okay, we, we've been good, we've been spiritual, we've been virtuous, therefore our next life will be better than this life. Um, and very often, we don't consider what it actually means for the next life to be better. You know, so what's actually better? Does that mean more pleasure, more health, more wealth, um, more beauty? What does it mean for us to progress from life to life? You know, um, but that's generally the conception. You do some wicked things, you get reborn as a worm. You do some good things, you get reborn as a sage. Um, not entirely incorrect, but a bit simplistic. So that's the idea that we have on reincarnation. Generally, we all agree the body doesn't reincarnate. We're very sure the body dies. You know, and that's something that's obvious. You know, we see bodies rot, we see them decay in India, we throw them into the fire, and we watch them turn to ash before our very eyes. And often we keep the ash in the jar and go to the Ganges and dump it at the mouth. So you see with your eyes that the body doesn't carry on. You know the body dies. So in that sense, very few people actually think the body carries on. I mean, there are some cultures that believe in the body staying um, preserved. And there actually have been a lot of instances of discovering corpses that are mid-condition. You know, it's an interesting study. You can go and study the saints whose bodies don't decompose. And a lot of yogis, um, they enter what they call mahasamadhi, which is when a yogi decides that she's ready to leave her body. She sits in a meditation posture and leaves. And often that body stays in pristine condition for a while. It's a very beautiful thing. Um, there's a myth. There's an old Rosicrucian myth. The Rosicrucians are uh, kind of the predecessor to the Freemasons. They're a secret society in Europe. Um, they disguise themselves as doctors, but really they were magicians and you know spiritual beings and 
their founder, Christian Rosenkrewitz, they believe they found his body years and years and years after his death in immaculate condition, smelling of roses and emitting light, you know? So there's a lot of theories in the West about, you know, um, returning from the grave and coming back into the body that you left. So there are some reincarnation theories that talk about the body is carrying on. In fact, in the Hatha Yoga tradition, the reason you practice Hatha Yoga, these purification exercises, the Shat Karmas, the six purification techniques, asana, pranayama, the goal of that is to endow you with, uh, what do you call it, Vajra Deha or Divya Deha, which translates to the divine body, lightning body or adamantine body. So supposedly, it's not just going to increase your longevity, it's in its best case going to give you immortality in the body, not for its own sake, as a means for you to do your spiritual work. So the idea there is you practice Hatha Yoga, you're healthier, you live longer, perhaps forever. Now you have infinite time to gain immortality and to gain uh, enlightenment, you know. So there are some cultures that talk about the body going on. But for today's discussion, we'll take reincarnation to mean the end of the body, but the continuing of something else. You know? So what is that something else? Is it the mind? Normally people don't think this. And, and um, they don't think it's your personality that continues. Um, some people do, though. Some people maintain that you as um, a personality will move on to a new body. So it's kind of like your consciousness just gets downloaded into a new um, hardware. You know, you got it all stored on a backup drive somewhere and when this computer breaks down, we'll put you in a new computer and then your apps will run the same, you know? that Now, now we get into interesting territory though because now we have to ask, who are you? What, what makes you you? And what is the you that continues? What is the thinking mind? Mind versus brain. Consciousness versus, you know, and, and to do that, we necessarily have to do some yogic anatomy. You know, we have to talk a little bit about the layers of self. Today, I won't talk about the koshas, though, the yogic koshas. I prefer to talk about the tantric koshas. They have kind of a different scheme, but it works the same way. It's like the Russian and doll. You know, you open the doll and there's a smaller doll and you open that and then there's a smaller doll and you keep going. The idea is that you are made of many layers. Each uh, deeper layer is more you than the layer above it. So in varying degrees of superficiality, you you have a point and emanating from that point are varying layers. So in tantric um, systems, the outermost or most superficial layer of you is your stuff. You know, it's your um, material acquisitions or the way in which you arrange your space. This is called vastu or vashtu. And uh, Indian feng shui is actually called vastu shastra, the science of stuff, you know. So you have your stuff and one thing's for sure, you don't bring your stuff with you. You know, you know that when you die, this stuff doesn't really come with you. Um, and you know that because you have in your life lost lots of stuff in moving from one place to another. Maybe you theft happened, fire happened. I don't know. You lost stuff without you feeling like you significantly lost yourself. Of course, this is different for different people. We all have different layers of identification with our stuff. For some people, they really do think they are their stuff. And so losing that stuff is horrific. For those people, they'd like to believe they can bring their stuff with them, right? That's why they have pharaohs bury themselves with all their stuff. Because there are cultures that believe that you can bring that stuff 
with you, you know, or maybe not the physical stuff, but the energy of the stuff. I don't know. So for those of us identified with stuff, we like to believe that that's what we can bring with us. So there's a little bit, you can see in reincarnation, some wishful thinking, you know, like what we don't want to lose. We want to believe in a, in a, in a, in a concept that tells you, you won't lose that. It will come with you. But this is hard to buy. It's hard to buy that our material, spatio-temporally limited things will come with us into this next life. So perhaps Vastu isn't it. Then a deeper layer than that. Hey, Anisha, welcome. Welcome. Good to see you. I should point out, though, um, the Dalai Lama, the way they select the Dalai Lama is usually through reincarnation. So um, the next Dalai Lama is identified as a baby. Usually a monk in meditation will have an intuition as to where that baby is. They'll go to the Tibetan village. They'll tell the parents, I think your child is the avatar. You know, they'll do that. They'll tell the, and, and then they'll take the child and they have a few guesses. So they'll go and get a bunch of babies, you know, and bring them. And they'll put in front of the babies the toys of the previous Dalai Lama. And the legend has it that the baby who is the actual Dalai Lama, the reincarnated Dalai Lama, will choose from among the toys his toys from the previous life. He'll just know which of those toys are his. Similarly, sometimes you might visit places like different countries or something and have an intense sense of deja vu. So in that sense, while you might not be bringing your things with you, your relationship to those things seemingly endures. So I remember when I first, um, I remember I landed in India, first trip to India from Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia, and we went, we used to go back quite often. And the first trip I went back to India, I remember feeling this weird sensation of like, wow, I'm, I'm home. You know, my relationship to India endured, even if that life, you know, is some time ago. You know, it's actually, we won't get into how many lives ago it was, but you know, it's like, you feel that, you feel the sensation. So your relationship to things might endure. Something to note there. Second, we get deha. So while your stuff might be the most superficial layer of you, deeper than that, you have um, your body. So this is, for a lot of tantric systems, the most superficial layer, your body, your physical body. You know from seeing bodies decay and rot, and very few of us have had an experience of a saint's body immaculately preserved, smelling of roses, emitting sunshine, you know. Few of us have seen that. What we have seen, though, is decay, rot, burying. Um, of course, we don't dig up the bodies to see if they're still there. But in a lot of cultures where funeral pyres are a thing, you know the body doesn't maintain itself, you know. So we know that doesn't really come with us. What's deeper than that, though? So in the tantric system, deeper than deha is what they call chitta or chitta vritti. Now this word chitta, chitta vritti, means both mind and emotion. So for a lot of us, this is what our personality is constituted of. You know, for some people, their personality is your stuff. There's nothing more to them than the Ferraris, you know, the fleet of Ferraris. That's like, that's it. Um, and then you go a little deeper. Some people, they're their bodies, you know. They speak entirely in terms of the physical. They don't really, there's nothing really there beyond it. Then you go a little deeper and most of us are here where our personalities organize themselves around our thoughts and our emotions. The word chitta includes both of those things. So in, in Indian philosophy, there weren't two words for emotions and thoughts. They weren't distinguished. They were one and the same experience. And philosophically speaking, if they were distinct, 
then how is it possible for you to have thoughts about your feelings and feelings about your thoughts? You know, there must be something that brings them together. So the idea is that your thoughts produce emotions. Your emotions produce thoughts. They are operating on the same level of your being. So generally, our personality is here. You know, this is what we think we are. Um, and, you know, if you say, okay, Nish, describe yourself. You know, I could say, oh, physically, I could say long hair, brown eyes, brown skin, physically. Um, but that's not for you what a personality would be. That's a phenotype or a description. You'd want more from me. You know, you'd say, no, 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 but what do you like? You know, what, what, who are you as a person? And then I might say, okay, I like John Keats as a poet. That's my favorite poet. I love Black Sabbath. And I might be telling you what I like, and that tells you something about me, but not yet me, you know? You'd want more. I hope, I don't know, we're going on a date or something, like you want, and, and, and you want more, and maybe, maybe, you know, I would say, oh, I feel happy when this happens, or I am a type A person or a type B person. All of this, though, are stories that we tell ourselves or that have been told about us and we believe. So they're thoughts, yes, and we, we've talked about this together a lot. Our personalities are thought constructs. They are a conglomeration of stories that we've inherited or that we've come up with. And often a lot of our lives are negotiating of these stories versus other stories. So we're trying desperately to hold on to one specific story about who we are um, in contrast with other ones. We got that. Now, deeper than that, though, deeper than that in the tantric system is prana. Prana is in a sense transpersonal. You know, it's, it's, prana is a sheet of energy. All things are united in one blanket of prana. But as Einstein said in his unified field theory, matter is specific points in his unified field that are denser than others. Similarly, your personality is a specific dense point in the ocean of prana. So in other words, you are a differentiated expression of prana. So you can imagine a sheet and the sheet is kind of being shook or there's a magnet under the sheet. And now I'm saying there are two things. But there's a magnet there. And then you'll see these spikes come out in the ball bearings. Like, that's you. You're, an, you're a spike. You're a wave in the ocean. A differentiated form of prana. Now, you as a differentiated form of prana have access to all the prana in the universe, right? You have access to the entire range of prakriti. So at times... Depending on certain mental constructs that you're entertaining, since, and this is probably the most esoteric I'm going to be today, forgive me, your thoughts are channels for prana. So your mind filters the prana around you. Certain thoughts bring in more prana, certain thoughts deplete your prana, and prana being life force or energy. So beyond just the word prana, what it means to experience prana, we probably use the word mood. You know, that's probably the best word for it. Sometimes you feel excited, ecstatic, energetic. That's a pranic state. Sometimes you feel depleted, low, kind of, you know, blah, pranic state. So you as a being experience varying degrees or I should say varying flavors of prana. You know, we had our class about energy some time ago and we talked a little bit about um Tamas and Rajas and Sattva. We know there are different flavors of prana even. But generally speaking, prana is affected by or has an effect on your thoughts and your emotions. You know, 
The relationship is very close. It's hard to see which came first. It's like a chicken and the egg problem. That's why in yoga, not tantra, in yoga, they actually have prana a little bit more superficial than thoughts and emotions. You know, in the yogic system, you have your body, the Anomaya Kosha. Underneath that, you have your Pranamaya Kosha. Underneath that, you have your Manomaya Kosha, where you have your thoughts and emotions. You know, in the Tantric system, you have your body. Underneath that, you have your mind and emotions. And underneath that, you have your Prana. The reason I'm choosing the Tantric system today is because I think it, it describes reincarnation a little bit better. So in the Tantric system, your Prana affects what you think and how you feel and that in turn affects your body and that in turn affects your material surroundings. So you can imagine someone with um, access to a lot of prana, a very high pranic being, uh, maybe has a lot of rajas, let's just say a lot of a dynamic moving energy, will be a very quick thinker, the mind will be very active, the emotions might be very fiery, so they might be a very impassioned person, and they might be a very ambitious person, or a very um, greedy person, perhaps. And given the nature of their energy, they're able to, with their thoughts, go out in the world and get what they want. So they're very rajasic, they're kshatriyas or knights, we call them do doers, you know. They go out and they build their business empire, and that reflects in their stuff, you know. Maybe you see it in their Ferraris, in the fleet of their Ferraris, whatever, you know. So in that way, you can see how the prana affected the subsequent layers of self, you know. Someone with a very low prana or tamasic kind of flavor might uh, be a little sluggish in their thinking so they might not enjoy philosophy or like learning is a bit difficult you know it's kind of hard to understand new concepts and as a result their body might suffer various illnesses might be very lazy sluggish lethargic you, you know you can see so in that sense the prana affects um, all the other stuff how your mind will be how your emotional disposition will be how your body will be um, and uh, how your um, surroundings to a degree will be, you know. So now we have all the stuff for reincarnation theory. Of course, I'll just complete and say deeper than prana is something known as um, shunyam or shunyata, which means void. So underneath the prana, there is space, just pure nothingness. Ruby talks about this in all of his poems. He talks about the complete abolition of self or the dissolving of self into this nothingness give up the drop become the ocean you know this spaciousness this emptiness is for the yogis ananda mayakosha bliss body because one thing about this space is that it's very very blissful <laughs> feels amazing and you experience it every night when you go into deep sleep it's just that you aren't aware for it. You're not there for it. Your mind hasn't learned to stay there when this state comes. In meditation, you learn. So you feel this void, and a lot of people mistake themselves to be this void. You know, this is actually the final trap on your way up the ladder, spiritually speaking. You get here and you think you're done. You know, but there's one more step, and the Buddhists call this the light shining in the void. This is chit. So this is what you are. Now, you'll notice with all these layers of being, they are objects of your experience. So you can experience your stuff. You can experience your body. You experience your thoughts and emotions. You even experience your energy and moods. 
you also experience the emptiness that contains all of that. The thing that you are, though, is none of those objects. You are the subject, right? Now, you're never going to find that subject because it's you who's doing the looking. You know, you're never going to objectify that which you are. You know, they say um, it is that which cannot be seen, but by which seeing is made possible. So that's what you really are. And you can never really see yourself because you are the one seeing, you know. So in that sense, it's impossible to use science to distill into the test tube the essence of what you are. You know, science can never perform that function because necessarily science implies subject-object relationship where you're learning about the object, very seldom about the subject. Yeah, science, you know, some scientists say we learn about ourselves, right, through studying science. What are you learning? You're learning about the mind. You're learning about the emotions. You're learning about certain personality dispositions. But you never really learn about who you are because who you are is beyond all of the objects of knowledge. So that being said, reincarnation doesn't actually concern you, if you can dig that. Karma does not concern you. It actually has nothing to do with you. Because you are the one that's watching it all unfold. You're standing kind of behind everything. Now, there is a trap though. If you think about the layers of the body, um, the trap is that you might think they are discrete. You know? So you might think there's this layer and then there's this one and there's this one and there are like borders between them, you know? And through meditation, you can go through the borders and experience different levels. In reality though, they are all interwoven. They are interpenetrating. So the more subtle it is, the more pervasive it is. And I'll just leave that there because that sentence is a little heavy. But you could just think that the reason they say consciousness is all pervasive is because it's the subtlest. Um, less subtle is the void, but all things contain emptiness. Even the atoms, right? Matter is emptiness. Energy, ultimately. If matter is energy and matter is empty, then energy too is space. You know, energy, less subtle, but still subtler than bodies, uh, thoughts. You know, so you can see how it's like there's a flower and the fragrance of the flower pervades the room. So all these layers are interconnected, you know, if you can think of it that way. The reason I wanted to point all this stuff out is because reincarnation, karma, we discuss this as a science, but let it not bring any kind of despair, you know, because it's got nothing to do with you, really. Karma can become such a heavy notion if we take it too seriously. So that's the disclaimer. So what is it then that continues when you die? Yogically speaking, we say it's the prana. That's the subtlest layer of you that is still relatively personal, individual, and differentiated. The void is not. The shunyata, that's transpersonal. Like, it's just everywhere, you know? There's no concept of self in the void. In prana, there is some concept of self, and we call this jiva. Jiva is the closest Sanskrit word to the Western idea of soul. Because in the West, soul does have an individualistic connotation. It's, after all, your soul. You don't just say soul, you know? I mean, unless it's a genre of music, you don't just say soul. Like, everyone has a soul. 
And in Western kind of understanding of reincarnation, it's that which continues, the soul which continues. Now, if you ask a Vedantic or Buddhist philosopher, what a, a Buddhist philosopher would talk to you about it. They don't like all this kind of abstract conceptualization uh, generally. But a Vedantic philosopher will say, soul, oh, that's Atman, you know? And what is Atman? Brahman. How many are there? One. <laughs> There's only one Atman, right? Your Atman is the same as my Atman, and that's just Brahman. So your soul is God. But here, and of course I should say, that's one branch of uh, Indian philosophy. It's called non-duality. There is another branch called qualified non-duality that says, yes, Atman is one, but appears, or not to say appears, but can be differentiated. You know, in the same way you say the wave is made of the same water as the ocean, but we can grant that the wave is in itself a thing. It's an individual expression of that ocean and should be honored as such. So in that sense, we can think of the jiva. The jiva is kind of like uh, your software. It's your pranic software. It contains the information that will express itself in thought, mind, body, and stuff meaning circumstance, in your next life. Cool? So that's, that's really the clincher here. Your prana is like the software of your organism. And I use the your here sparingly because we already established who you really are. But at least I can say this body, this mind, this circumstance is the way it is because it's reading the code supplied to it by the pranic unit that is this. Do you have a question, Anisha? I'm just a little confused. Um, I'm just trying to put it all together. So like you said earlier, like karma has nothing to do with us. So if this is, I guess you could say like the manifestation of the karma, like is this like, I don't know how to phrase this question. Is like our reality based on the karma we've cultivated in our past life then? Good, good, good. Yes, definitely in the right direction. I, I get that I'm throwing a lot of stuff at you right now. Um, and I'm hoping we'll all snap into focus. I'm giving you various pieces, you know, like the five layers of self and the nature of suffering. And we haven't really even started talking about karma yet. You know, we're still trying to locate. And I think what I'm trying to do here is I'm trying to circle around our vague cultural understanding of reincarnation. And I'm trying to be precise about what it is that is specifically being reincarnated. You know, what is specifically going across the gate of death into the next life? And my claim here is to say it's not your stuff. It's not your body. It's not your mind or thoughts. It's your pranic body, your subtle body, your etheric body. And I don't want to use these words because a lot of us haven't really, you know, it, it makes no sense to speak of that which we have no experience of, you know, because um, then it's just wasted words. So subtle body is what we call it, etheric body, you know. This thing continues with you. This thing then expresses itself in the mind, emotional disposition, and the body in a certain way. So you can think of it this way. Your energy has a certain pattern, and it's the pattern that reproduces itself. 
So a pattern reincarnates. Can you dig that? So it's not a thing that reincarnates. It's not a person. It's not your individuality that reincarnates. It's a continually evolving pattern or process. So can you imagine it's just a process that's reincarnating? And in fact, I can hopefully now, I hopefully we have enough philosophical data to disregard the word reincarnation entirely. You're not reincarnating. You just incarnated and it's just continuing. It's just one process that continues to evolve. It just so happens that along the line of that process, there are several bodies, several minds, several emotional dispositions that help facilitate different parts of the process when you get to it. You know? So you think of it as a process, a pattern. Your identity, your sense of ego, which we call ahamkara, your I-ness, your sense of this is me, that's you, that's the world out there, and this is all happening to me, that centralization of consciousness is also a pattern. It's coming with you, you know? So how are patterns made? So this, I think, is where I will get into the most scientific as I can possibly be with reincarnation. First, I must say, all science is just a model of reality. It's not reality itself. As we talked about in the beginning of class, the map is not the territory. The concept is not the thing. The thought of the strawberry is different from the biting of the strawberry. So science, no matter how beautiful and subtle the theory, oh, string theory, atoms, you know, they're all just theories pointing you to something. They're not the thing. So it would be kind of silly to believe we live in a world of atoms, right? We don't. We, we live in a world that is made navigatable, navigable, that we can navigate in because of our model of reality that we call atoms, that we call energy. So Einstein's theory of relativity, Newtonian mechanics, these are all just theories. And in many instances, Newtonian mechanics and Einsteinian relativity, like crash, clash, you know, they don't work next to each other. Leibniz and Newton don't work next to each other sometimes. But we can still use different theories for different needs, you know. So we can appreciate science as an instrument without expecting it to be a description, you know. In other words, science doesn't have to describe the way things are. Science just has to give us an instrumental or practical understanding that we can navigate the world with, you know? So that being said, yogic science too, they're still just concepts, you know? There is um, no reason that you should accept reincarnation as a real thing. I'm only advocating it as a helpful idea, you know? So here's why it's a helpful concept. Given that a theory's role is to give you as much explanation as possible for why things are the way they are, we should prefer a theory that explains more than a theory that explains less. We call this explanatory, explanatory power. And there's a lot of like philosophy of science, right? Karl Popper and all these people talking about what it is to do science, epistemology, you know, how do we know things? How can we know things reliably? So there's all of that. In this epistemology or philosophy of science, we can generally agree a theory that explains more, that is a theory with more explanatory power, is better than a theory with less. So the less we have to posit to random chance or random entities, the better, right? Because science seeks to understand. So um, it would be unscientific to just say, I don't know why that happened. 
That's a mystery, and it's a mystery too great for me to learn about. A scientist goes, no, 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 let's get out the lab apparatus, let's go and do some observations. We can know why the days have different lengths throughout the year, you know? So, let me offer you two theories. Mozart is born. <laughs> Age three, he's already a brilliant composer. Incredible. Um, you have two options. Either you believe that this was completely random chance, there's just something different about Mozart's brain, or you buy that he has done some work in a previous life, and that life uh, is now influencing this new life with exceptional musical ability. You know, those are the two theories before you to explain the phenomena of Mozart. So with regards to the latter, the second theory, let's motivate it a little more. What do you know about talent? So Mozart, he's got a musical talent. He's a great composer. He's a br brilliant pianist. Apparently, he and his father didn't get along because his father was a musician too. But Mozart, the young three-year-old, would constantly like upstage him at shows. And he was actually kind of jealous of Mozart and tried to repress him, all that stuff. So why is it that Mozart is so brilliant a pianist, so brilliant a composer? Well, what do we know about talent? We know that talent, well, if you're an outsider, if you're looking at someone with talent, it's easy to project onto them and say they've always had it. They were born that way. They never had to work at it, you know. Um, but we know with, our, with regards to our own talents that we did have to work at it. You know, we did have to kind of practice, practice teaching yoga, practice playing music. You know, we had to practice. And when we practiced, we built a certain muscle memory, you know, or we created certain pathways. In other words, we created certain uh, patterns in our prana, you know. We'll, we'll, we'll get to that a little deeper. Don't worry. We'll talk about how practice equals pattern in prana, habits, all that. But for now, just accept that you know that it takes a certain level of muscle memory, a certain level of development to enjoy facility in any endeavor. You know, so if you see a yoga teacher who's like really on it, chances are they've thought like 300 classes, you know, or if you see a great writer, you just have to ask them about the 20 manuscripts the publishers rejected. You know, they're all too ready to tell you about all their failures. There's a Zen proverb, every arrow that meets its mark is a result of 10,000 misses, something like that. So it's like, you know that to become a great archer, you've got to miss. There's no getting around that. So if you see someone who gets the bullseye their first time around, and then they get it their second time around, and then the third time around, you have to infer that they put in their 10,000 misses, you know? They put in their 700 hours of teacher training at some point. Um, maybe just not in that life, you know? We have the good fortune because we know a lot of people who started off and they sucked at something, and then by the end of their life, they were the best at that thing, and they can tell you how they developed it. Chances are in their next life, they take that with them, they'll be just as good and they'll become even better, you know? Um, so with Mozart, you have those two theories. One, randomly, he just was great, you know? And of course, that's tempting to believe, right? It's very unscientific, but it relieves us of any responsibility of actually getting better. If we truly believe genius is just a stroke of luck, it's an accident of birth, then maybe that should check out biologically. You know, they, they got Einstein's brain and looked at it. 
This came from the same belief that um, geniuses, whatever genius is, um, was an inherent quality that was just God-given. It was just a quirk, um, you know, a random act of chance. They looked at Einstein's brain, it was totally normal. Nothing abnormal about it. There was no large prefrontal cortex, nothing weird, you know? So by all seemingness, there doesn't seem to be any biological basis for this. It just seems like... Um, all right, we have to throw up our hands and accept that this just happens and we don't know why. Or we can reflect and think, no, we know that talent is a product of practice. If this person is talented at age three, they didn't practice in that life. So when did they practice? Had to have been a previous life. That's why reincarnation offers that extra explanatory, I never say the word right, explanatory power. To explain people like Mozart, you know, goes the other way too, of course, for the opposite of Mozart, whatever the opposite turns out to be. (laughs) So we have that. Now we can talk about karma. So if reincarnation is just um, this process processing itself and it doesn't get limited by death, it continues on. What is karma? So karma simply means action-reaction. So what you do in this life creates a reaction. Every cause must have its effect. Now, if you act, in another way to say this is everything you do further strengthens your predisposition to do that thing again. So another way to think of karma is, is probably habit, you know, Um, you in your life, by your practices, by your routines, create certain habits. So for instance, if you are spending a lot of your time reading philosophy books, attending philosophy lectures, practicing yoga, your habit or your predisposition is towards spirituality. Your actions, your thoughts, your emotions are centering around this, this spiritual practice. That imprints on your prana, you know, that's the pattern. So your actions create patterns that imprint on your prana and these patterns can become stronger and stronger depending on how often you do them or how much you nourish that pattern, how much you water that plant. Similarly, habits, addictions, they work the same way. If we are habitually snapping at our partner, if we're habitually angry, you know, the more we act out of that thought, emotion, the more we're going to imprint that into our prana. So this is a rather clumsy way of saying, um, I realize in this lecture, I bit off a little more than I I can chew. I have to admit that. (laughs) I'm realizing now... I took about seven or eight steps too quickly. I do apologize. <laughs> I was excited. I was excited to get to this part. Then now I realize we're like at eight o'clock. And I'm like, oh, man. <laughs> I will say this, though, in closing. In, in one last ditch attempt to convey this idea that I flubbed, my apologies, but my last ditch attempt is this. Your actions or your habits imprint something on your energy that we call samskara. A samskara is a word for a stored pattern. You create samskaras through actions in this life. 
So right now you're creating a samskara. By listening to this philosophy lecture, by like thinking about this stuff, you are acting. Your thoughts and emotions are responding a certain way. And this is imprinting into your prana something. So my goal here is not really in the words. Like I'm not trying to say anything to you. Rather, I'm hoping my words will be a vehicle for an energetic transfer. Right? That's the best thing we can do for each other. That's why we feel high sitting together in these conversations. That's what's happening. It's an energy. So that goes into your prana. Now, when you die, right, you have a stockpile of samskaras based on what you did in that life, you know? Now, we're complex beings. We don't just go to philosophy lectures. We also shoot up in the back alley. You know, I don't know. We have a bunch of other stuff that we do. And so whatever it is that we're doing, it all gets tallied up at the end of our life as samskaras. These samskaras express themselves in your next life as tendencies. They are not determinative in any way. Karma or reincarnation is your, your being given a certain predisposition as a, re, as a result of your previous disposition. This is true today as it is true for your next life. Today, you are predisposed to certain activities because yesterday you did them. You know, so because you practiced yoga yesterday, today you want to practice it. The more you practice yoga, the more you're going to practice yoga. It's like a positive feedback loop. Now, when you die, just because your body expired doesn't mean that pattern stops. Rather, when you get a new body, should you get a new body, that pattern will continue and you will find yourself at a young age being interested in spirituality, you know? So that's a simplistic way of putting it. Now, an even deeper way of putting it is you actually choose your bodies and parents and circumstances to best express your predominant samskaras. You know, so that's the part I was really excited to get to. And now here we are at eight and I didn't get to it. But let's just do a part two. Yes. Part two will be this. You chose your parents. You chose your body, you chose your zodiac sign, you chose your entire astrological chart, um, and really because in this life, you wanted to express certain samskaras as opposed to others. You felt like it was necessary for you to do certain things. When you experience illness in your life, when you experience suffering in your life, in a way you chose to. You set the stage for those things to happen because you are experiencing the effects whose causes lie way back there. You can even call it your subconscious mind or the unconscious mind if you want to use a Jungian term. But every experience that washes up on your shore of your life comes from the ocean of your existence. Nothing comes to you that you did not, in some sense of the word, instigate. <laughs> This is a hard one to swallow. Vivekananda even says there was no blow that was not deserved. There was no punch that was not deserved. And another way to say it is every cooling breeze that brushes upon the sinner's face, this British saying, is a result of previous meritorious action. And every disturbing thought that uh, disturbs an, a meditator's peace is a result of a previous action. You know, it's that subtle. 
It's that subtle. So we'll close by saying this. When you're done with your karmas, meaning when every one of your causes has finished with its effects, then you can leave. Then you no longer need a body. As long as you have samskaras, meaning as long as you have tendencies, as long as you have causes that haven't yet produced their effects, you will keep incarnating into body after body until you're done with all of that. So if in this life, what do you want most? Think about that. Like, do you want wealth? Do you want um, whatever it is that you want most? If you don't get it in this life, you're going to come back for it. It's a samskara. For me, I had to have that rock star thing. Like I needed to go on the, you know, debauchery of, of playing guitar in a rock band. It could have been no other way. I'm happy I got it over with, you know. In a way, you have to get it out of your system. Um, and then you don't need that. But now I need other things. And then I'll take keep taking bodies until I can do those. So let's just close there for now. Next week, we'll talk about Plato and Socrates and what they have to say about reincarnation. Okay, please forgive me. Please forgive me. I'll do better next week. <laughs> Let's close with an ohm, yes? Let's come into a nice cross-legged pose. Bring our hands over our heart. You're welcome to join me for this final ohm or just sit. Let's inhale to ohm. Thank you all for being my teachers. Namaste. All right. Thank you, everybody. I will end here, but I will stick around for as long as you need if you have any questions or... <laughs> I wanted to, like, bring something up because I was, like... I was like meditating the other day and I was like, I realized that like, okay, like I like the life I want is like to like live in Iceland and like have a little cottage and grow my own stuff. Like, you know, the typical, like typical, typical little spiritual thing. But then like in my head, I was like, but like, if you get that, like, like, and it just keeps going good. Like you, like you're just going to be having like a boring ass life. Like this is like where like it actually is like, and the thing you said about like good and bad, like you approach a situation as good as bad and bad instead of like, wow. you know, like being out of touch with reality. I like, like I had that like realization. Cause like, I know a lot of things, but I don't internalize a lot of it. And like, I feel like I like internalized the whole, like, you need the bad. Like before I was like, yeah, you need the bad, you need the good. Woo. But like now I'm like, okay, like 
it just makes it just feels different like the idea of it feels oh. different yeah i just wanted to share that because I, i thought of you guys after so <laughs> actually that's super super deep what you experienced because that experience that you had is the answer for why they're suffering in the world yeah you know people always say like because only tantra answers that because only tantra says it's actually you chose it even in the worst cases concentration camps all that you know the worst forms of human suffering grace padre <laughs> the worst forms of human suffering unlimited free blissful consciousness recognizes to deny any aspect of its being is contrary to its great self love so in order to create a universe that is truly expressive of that all encompassing love it must allow for the full range of possibilities including the bad the ugly the and dumb. all of the bad like if you look at it stems from like things like love like you can only hate something that you love you know what i mean exactly oh so, yeah that makes perfect sense the core of it is love and also i think that when you pointed this out like the typical stereotypical um spiritual desire to have a natural living no way isolate yeah that is i think um symbolic you know there's like a symbolic desire to find a higher more transcendental realm that's free or away from all this mundane suffering and you know yeah yeah that's like that escapist risk <laughs> yes that's exactly what it was <laughs> Yeah, I had an experience once where um I went to this talk of this author who wrote an autobiography because he was a child soldier in Sudan and he had like the most horrific things happen to him. I read his book and I cried and I went to his talk and he was super inspirational. And I was like 12 and I was like super emo. <laughs> Maybe I was 14. And um there was a Q&A afterwards and I was like I mean, it was like the most like sentimental cringy thing ever, but I got the microphone somehow and I was like, "Yo, I'm a preteen trying to figure out life. Like if you could go back and like as a, like as a person if you could go back and not have experienced all of those things that were so like horrific, like straight up so horrific. If you could go back and never have experienced them, would you?" And he said, "No." He said I would I would do it again. Which I found like I I still haven't really processed that. So <laughs> Yeah, that's all in favor of of this discussion we're having. Yeah, you might actually like Viktor Frankl's books cuz Viktor Frankl started to write during his time in the Nazi concentration camps and he often expresses that this is an opportunity for the deepest connections to God and what it means to be human. that's a lot um if i may butt into our little like <laughs> conversation happening right now i'm curious also if the laptop dies it dies but it's low on battery um i'm curious about the vedantic um understanding of good and bad and i'm wondering if this conversation is leading us to kind of like <laughs> a nietzschean like self-affirming life philosophy where like that which is good is that which affirms one's own life is that where we're going that's beautiful it's more buddhist actually um you don't remember don don stillo no 
the classes sometimes. Well, she's beautiful. She's been meditating for 30 years, very beautiful Buddhist. And she says this to me. It's very beautiful. She says, once she, I don't know the story. I think her friend went to their Buddhist teacher and said, oh, this person is suffering so much. I wish I could take on their suffering and help them. And the Buddhist teacher looks at this person and says, how arrogant (laughs) to assume that that person doesn't have the power to deal with it. Like they chose that suffering to affirm the power of their own birth. And Man, it, oh, the beautiful thought. Like if your parents are really mean or your life is really like shitty, like the Buddhist idea is your soul, or I, I don't say the Buddhist idea, but the Northern Mahayana or Tantric Buddhist idea is like you chose that as a means to affirm to yourself the power of your own life. So yes, there is that Nietzschean element to it. However, in the Vedantic idea, there is no good and bad um, because... How can you, like, what's the karma thing? Because I thought karma was a battle between good and, like, light and dark or whatever. Never, because those things imply that there are two, light, dark, good, and bad. In Vedanta, there's only knowledge or ignorance. And knowledge is not semantics, friend. (laughs) It's not because good and bad are value judgments on things. Yeah. Right. Knowledge. You can say knowledge is good, but that's a value judgment about knowledge. Knowledge itself is just seeing something as it is. Ignorance is not seeing it for what it is. So when in Vedanta you have knowledge. You no longer have the capacity to say that's good or that's bad because good in relation to what bad in relation to what, you know, Hmm. there's only the thisness or the tatata, the suchness of this moment. In other words, if you look at an evil person, like someone like Pol Pot or I don't know, choose your, choose your fighter, right? So Trump is not an evil person, right? Even though he's carrying out actions that might increase the suffering in the world, he's actually doing the same thing that I'm doing, that Gandhi is doing, which is living in accordance to his own version of reality. So the problem with Trump is not that he's evil, it's that he's kind of misaligned with reality so much so that his version of getting happiness is doing what he does. But he's not trying to harm people. He's just trying to find happiness in the only miserable way he knows how, you know? So in that way, can you say he's evil? No, you can't. Similarly, you can't say Mother Teresa is good. It just so happened that her worldview meant that um, in order for her to be happy, she had to serve her connection to humanity. She felt a trans person, you know? So she's not good either. Orientation around personal happiness. What's that? In your example, the both... Trump and um, Teresa are orienting themselves around their personal satisfaction. So is that like the life fulfillment that we're talking, like that was brought up earlier? Probably, probably. And um, yeah, it's really interesting and very scattered, <laughs> but I'm, I'm digging. No, it's right. It's right. It's life affirming because for Trump, what affirms his life is to act in accordance to his idea of reality. Mm-hmm. Similarly for Mother Teresa, what affirms her life, not even to say personal orientation of personal happiness, but what affirms her existence or how she chooses to exist, meaning how she chooses to act, necessarily flows out of her view of things. And Mm -hmm. it just so happens that her view of things 
includes a feeling of connectedness to all beings. So she can feel for the plight of people halfway across the world in Calcutta, India, and she goes over there. She's doing her motivation is exactly the same as maybe Pol Pot's motivation in murdering people. But what's different between the two is their varying degrees of knowledge or ignorance. Okay. I'm interested for part two. I'm, this is, this is, it's way too much to unpack and I'm very excited for a part two, but thank you for the little arrows that you're pointing places. Cause my, my, um, what do you call it? The body, my sensitive body. What do, what do you call Madonna, it? Rana, your. No, my, like my, my, whatever, my subtle body is picking up on what you're putting down and it's really thrilling. <laughs> I'm happy it is because I feel like I'm just I'm missing today. I'm just like <laughs> no, it's okay. you're just you're just trying to point directions to the destination. That's all you can do. <laughs> I have to apologize. Today's lecture was what was happening. <laughs> no, you're doing cool things. Objectively, you're doing cool things. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I hope something happened. Something of value. <laughs> Done. <laughs> Nish, I had one quick question about the the lecture. Um, is that in a lot of like teachings of like Ram Das and Eckhart Tolle is the concept of all of us being the same exact cosmic oneness. So how does that play into the fact of us having separate pranas with separate paths and separate, separate samskaras if we're all the same universal everything? Yeah. Wait, can I say something about that? Yes, please. Because I had like the same like kind of question in my head like for the past couple of weeks and I've been like slowly trying to like answer that and I came like like if we're all like one cosmic thing Eckhart totally said something about this too I think or Alan Watts or some one of those people but they said like okay kind of like the thing I said about going to live like my dream life in the little cottage if everything was good all the time or if we were that one cosmic being all the time it would get so stagnant that like nothing would really keep happening. Like, you know what I mean? So like through like these like individual paths through these like varying, like basically like individuality, like us being individuals, we're just experiencing it. Like, like, so we can feel it deeper in order to like put it, you know what I mean? Like that, like I, you you get what I'm trying to say, but like, I I hope you do because that's what I came up with when I asked. Oh, I live for your realizations because they are so pure and they strike home exactly true with scripture. They say when scripture aligns with guru, aligns with personal experience, then only have you arrived at true knowledge. And uh, funnily enough, what Christina is saying is exactly in scripture why there's a multiplicity, even if there's a unity. So it's exactly that. If you have one being, we call this being Satchit Ananda or pure consciousness, that being, in order to more fully explore and know itself, creates a world of multiplicity so that it can experience various facets of its being. So it's true in the sense that we're all one cosmic being, but untrue in the sense that we're all the same because we're all different ways of, you know, the blind man and the elephant. One says it's a snake who yanks the tail. One says it's a tree who touches the leg, you know, it's the same elephant, but it's interesting that there are these different parts to the elephant. 
Now, the interesting thing is, like, Nickness, like, of all the things that pure consciousness could have been, it decided to be Nickness. You know, that's a remarkable thing. That's like, okay, there is something so fundamentally good about the Nick expression. You know, now what's beautiful is that our ego, like our like narcissist falling in love with his own reflection is still an expression of universal divine love for its creation. So we're experiencing this great love for this. Like how uh, the problem is when in order to be niche, I must negate Christina-ness and um, Anisha-ness and Nick-ness and TikTok-ness. Like I must negate I must negate all of that in order to be niche. Then I can make an error. I can, for a moment, forget my identity as all things expressed differently. That's when I suffer because something will never quite feel right. Now, when I wake up, here's what happens. It's not that I go back to being an undifferentiated, blissful sheet of consciousness. It's that I wake up to the unity in my multiplicity. Then... I can sit here, look at the diversity, see only unity, but still enjoy the difference, you know? So that's kind of, it's a higher experience. Now, this all feels like lifetimes, right? Like, oh, why would we make this error? It's in the cosmic scheme of time, just a brief error. Can you imagine that? Your various births of suffering and ego in the grand scheme of things is just a brief error in judgment of forgetting for a moment what you are in favor of the part. <laughs> did that do it? Awesome. Yes, that did. Thank you. Okay, good, good, good. Thank you for the question, Nick. Very deep. And Christina, mwah, love it. Deep. Thank you. Crazy. All right, I'm going to go, guys. Thank you so much. I'll see you guys next week. Love you guys. Yeah, take care. Bye. Christina. Bye. Very well. Thank you. Um, today in my biology class, we, it's like genetics. So basically we were learning about like, I don't know, like phylogenics, trees, everything like that. And like, literally my professor said like unity in diversity, like today watching the lecture and you literally just like, my mind is blown to pieces. (laughs) Nish, Nish always says things that I experienced that. like that day. Nish will always <laughs> quote something from a book I just read. He'll quote something exactly from a page I read. It's very crazy. It's crazy. Shiva's mercy. Amazing. Okay, thank you so much. You're um, welcome. I'll see you guys later. Bye. Uh, thank you so much, Nish. Take care, everybody. Yeah, it was a pleasure and a joy. Thank you too. Thank you for another incredible episode of For the Love of Yoga. Find me at patreon.com slash yoga with Nish for more meditation and yoga classes. To get in on the discussion, you can find us every Monday night at 7 p.m. Pacific with Stay Ohm Yoga. You find us on social media. And also every Thursday night at 7.30 p.m. Pacific with Yoga World Heart. Have a beautiful day ahead. Shanti, Shanti, Shanti.